There we go. All right, so John chapter 5, the healing at the pool on the Sabbath. After this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is in Jerusalem by the Sheep Gate a pool in Aramaic called Bethesda, which has five roof colonnades. In these lay multitudes of individuals, blind, lame, and paralyzed. One man who was there had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him laying there he, and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, Do you want to be healed? The sick man answered him, Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. And while I am going, another steps down before me. Jesus said to him, Take up your bed and walk. And at once the man was healed, and he took up his bed and walked. Now that day was the Sabbath. So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, It is the Sabbath, and it is not lawful for you to take up your bed. But he answered him, The man who healed me, that man said to me, Take up your bed and walk. They asked him, Who is the man who said to you, Take up your bed and walk? Now the man who had been healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn as there was a crowd in the place. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you are well. Sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. And this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, My father is working until now, and I am working. This is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees his Father doing. For whatever the Father does, the Son does likewise. For the Father loves the Son, and shows him all that he himself is doing. And greater works than these he will show him, so that you may marvel. For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. The Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, has, but has passed from death to life. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son to have life in himself. And as he has given him authority to execute judgment because, of the, because he is the Son of Man, do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out, and those who have done good, those who have done good to the resurrection of life, and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. May God bless and unfold his words to us today. I've entitled this message, Greater Works Than These, Hope for Spiritual Invalids. There's the phrase, greater works than these, I think is very significant. Because we saw a wonderful work of a man paralyzed, or at least an invalid, who had not the strength even to get himself to that pool for 38 years. And suddenly he's able to his, his atrophied muscles are suddenly whole again and he can pick up his bed and carry it and walk. That is an amazing thing. But Jesus talks about greater works than these. Now the man who picked up his bed and walked, that was a work of healing. It was not a work of salvation. And when Jesus speaks of greater works than a physical healing of a paralytic man, he is talking about people receiving spiritual life, people who are dead, who are far beyond the, uh, the state of being spiritually lame or spiritually paralyzed or spiritually blind. They are spiritually dead. So Jesus, in this passage, uses this lesson of a healing 
in a man who returns no gratitude whatsoever, and there's no evidence that he even believes that Jesus is the Son of God. At least there's no entrance into um, any kind of relationship with him. Jesus uses this as an object lesson to show the greater things. And the greater thing is eternal life through Jesus Christ. So, hope for spiritual invalids. Maybe you, like me, at times, feel like a spiritual invalid. You know that Jesus is the fountain of living water. And you know that you have drunk of that living water. And you know that you have spiritual life within you. But still, sometimes it seems that that reality is, is distant and you feel kind of parched. Maybe there's some hope in that way. But when a, when a spiritual invalid trusts in Jesus Christ, that person's testimony is no longer invalid. There's a little play on words there, but when there, when there is a real faith in Christ, there is real hope. And this is what, this, what the gospel is all about. So let's begin with, uh, at the beginning with uh, the first verse here. And a significant phrase in this verse is a multitude of invalids. A multitude of invalids. Now an invalid is a person who is absolutely no capacity to accomplish what they want to do. Uh, a blind person can't see. A lame person can't walk. A paralyzed person can't move. There is absolutely no capacity for them to do those things where those abilities are lacking. And this text says, After this there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. We don't even know which feast it was. And it's actually kind of pointless to speculate, really, at this point. Usually when there's a feast and it's a significant to the text, John will tell us. But this is just a feast. They went up to Jerusalem. Now there is in Jerusalem, by the Sheep Gate, a pool in Aramaic called Bethesda, which has five rooted colonnades. I'm just going to stop there because this is leading up to the situation where we find the, the multitude of invalids. But John, he is very specific in the names and the places that he includes. And when he describes them specifically, it's for a reason. This location where this miracle takes place, it is by the Sheep Gate. Now the Sheep Gate had a very important function in the temple. That was where the sheep were brought in to be slaughtered. Now, we have the benefit of understanding all of the typology and symbolism of Jesus as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. We understand this. But I don't think it's by accident that this is by the Sheep Gate. Nor do I think it's by accident that it is by the Pool of Bethesda. Bethesda means House of Mercy. Nor do I think it's by accident that it has five roofed colonnades. In the construction of the tabernacle, many of the, uh, many of the measurements and of the numbers were fives. And in fact, five tends to be a number that typifies grace throughout the whole Old Testament and the New. Um, when Joseph wanted to identify Benjamin and above all of his other brothers, he put five times as much, uh, five times a portion in Benjamin's sack as all the rest. It's a number of abundance, it's a number of grace. Jesus multiplied five loaves to feed 5,000. Um, there are many other instances. So just as a general thing, if you look at the number five, it tends to be associated with grace, over and over abundant grace, undeserved favor poured out. All right, now, there's perhaps one other level. There's this pool. And the tradition that is in play here, it is not included in the ESV, but there's a sort of a, incorporated footnote in the King James, and I think the NIV has a footnote, which says an angel went down at certain seasons into the pool and troubled the water. 
For when, when whoever went first after troubling the water stepped in and was made whole of whatever disease he had. Now that is not in many manuscripts, so that that's why it doesn't make it into a lot of our translations. It's an explanatory note. But there, there's even a, a little incidental thing. In the Jewish understanding, this idea of living water or moving water was very significant. And it, it is uh, kind of typical of the Word of God. Jesus later interprets it as a, a manifestation or a, as a, a type of the Spirit of God. But when this water moves, there's supposed to be something that happens and there's supposed to be healing. So all of these things, all of these pictures of grace are all around this deck to this pool. But around the pool are a multitude of invalids. This is a picture of humanity. It's a picture of the Jewish observance, the Jewish religion, where they have sort of icons of grace all around them, but they're placing all of their faith in this speculative um, action of getting into this water when it's troubled. They're, they're placing a lot of faith in that water, just as the Jews placed faith in their external washings um, or in, in, uh, in other things or the temple itself. And so there are all of these people languishing and they're, they're waiting for this opportunity to get into this water. Now, these invalids are blind, they are lame, and they are paralyzed. This is a very good description of people who have ample religion. They're actually right in the temple court. They have all of these nods to grace around them, but they're missing the whole point. Jesus enters into the situation, and he identifies himself as the healer. He identifies himself as the door of the sheep. He identifies himself as the fountain of grace. So there's a multitude of invalids. I, I believe that this description of this multitude of invalids, we're supposed to imagine this. We're supposed to imagine and see the despair and the false, faint hope that is on their faces. And we're supposed to, you know, smell the, the bandages and, and the, just the, 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 the despair of that situation. It is such a picture of people caught in sin, in false tradition, or in anything that other than um, faith, genuine saving faith in God. So that's a backdrop. There's a multitude of invalids. But it gets more specific. Now let's, now let's talk about, we've, we've seen a multitude of invalids. Now let's look at one man's inability. One man who was there had been an invalid for 38 years. It's a long time. We are not told how old he was. Presumably, this affliction had stricken him at some time during his life. He had likely not been born that way because Jesus later makes it clear that this is because of sin, that he entered into this predicament. When Jesus saw him lying there, and knew that he had already been there for a long time. He didn't have to ask questions. Jesus knew this. Jesus is God. Jesus knew Nathaniel's character before he had ever met him. Jesus knew the heart of his mother and the question that was on her heart. Jesus knew the question that was on Nicodemus's heart and answered it before Nicodemus ever answered. So Jesus knew that this man had been there a long time. And he said to him, do you want to be healed? Now Jesus isn't trying to be funny here, like, of course the guy wanted to be healed. Duh, he's, he's laying there in front of the pool. Uh, I believe this question, it is, it is more than just uh, a silly or a, a banal remark. It is very similar 
to Jesus saying to the woman at the well, if you knew who it was that asked you, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. This is, this is an opportunity for this man to enter into a discussion and to get down to the root of his sickness. And the real root of his sickness, as we discover, is sin. It is, uh, it is sin that has this man in its grip. And the disease is merely a symptom of that. So he says, do you want to be healed? And the sick man answered him. Now notice, just as the woman at the well was very much focused on the temporal things, and as Nicodemus, when he was approached by, or when he approached Jesus, Nicodemus couldn't get the whole being born again. What do you mean? Go back into your mother's womb? He just didn't get the spiritual implication. This man, he is so far from engaging any, any kind of spiritual discussion. He says, Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. And while I am going, another steps down in front of me. So he is looking at the hopelessness of the situation. He is placing all of his hope on this magical moment when the water stirs. And he even seems somewhat resentful against those who get down before him and the fact that nobody will carry him. So really, this guy is in a bad spot. He knows it. And on top of that, he probably has a chip on his shoulder. Not a very happy man. So that is one man's inability. Now, there's a, perhaps, there's a little connection in here. I'll just, I'll just put it out there for you. There's one other time where the, the, the time frame of 38 years is used in Scripture. Anyone want to take a guess? Something that went on for 38 years. Usually it's rounded off to 40. But in Deuteronomy chapter 14, um, we're told that the children of Israel actually wandered in the desert, in the wilderness, for 38 years. So I don't know whether John is making a connection. You can't really bear it out from the text. But you could almost put him and all of those people who are just sort of languishing there in limbo and, and kind of hoping for that healing, that deliverance, you could almost make an analogy between them and the people in the desert who have not entered in because of unbelief and therefore they are stuck where they are. So we have a multitude of invalids. We have one man's inability. And now we have a merciful intervention. Jesus says to him, get up, Take up your bed and walk. And once the man was healed, and he took up his bed and walked. Now if we go back a little bit, we see that Jesus singled out this man, didn't he? There's a, Jesus could have said to the whole gang, get up, take up your beds and walk. Or he could have sent an angel down to Stir up the water and send them all down into the water and they could have all been healed that way. But he's very specific. He singles out this man who's been there for 38 years. And he, all, and he knows. He knows he's been there for 38 years. Um, and it is completely his initiative. We can, we can question the justice of God sometimes. But we, we should no more do that than we should question Jesus' justice in this, where he singles out one person to heal out of all of them. It is God's prerogative. Now, this is not a picture of salvation here, but it is a picture of a sovereign God who does what he pleases, who, who, uh, who has complete sovereignty over who is healed and who is not. So Jesus says to him, and he intervenes, he says, take up your bed and walk. The man is utterly helpless. The man is utterly hopeless. Jesus says, take up your bed and walk. And the man does so. Now, I don't believe Jesus was asking permission when he said, do you want to be healed? I don't believe Jesus needs to ask permission to do anything. Uh, but I believe he is exercising his mercy 
by healing this man. And he knows very well, because he is omniscient after all, he knows very well this man is going to be the tattletale that is going to stick the Pharisees on him, going to stick the Jews on him. It's, it's all going to come to a head uh, when he goes and he reports that he has done this deed on the Sabbath. Whenever Jesus intervenes, it is, it is an act of his own intention, and it is a merciful intervention. It's a, the place is called Bethesda, the house of mercy. Jesus is bringing the, the real meaning to the house of mercy. The house of mercy is something that exists because of Christ. Christ is the one who shows mercy and compassion. He sends rain upon the just and the unjust. So there is definitely um, an act of God going on here. Let's move on here. The next verse, we have an interrogation. I'm going to call it a misguided interpretation to, to stick with my outline, but it also fits here. Now on that day, that day was the Sabbath. Okay, the big Day. This is probably a Sabbath in the sense of a feast day, but it is likely also the Sabbath in the sense of um, the seventh day when the Jews worship. So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, now here is their misguided uh, interrogation beginning. It is the Sabbath, and it is not lawful for you to take up your bed. Well, if you read Scripture carefully, there's nothing that says he can't take up his bed. And if you read according to the spirit of the law, you get this. On the Sabbath, you shouldn't do the work that you normally do. If you're a carpenter, you shouldn't carpent on the Sabbath. You, know, you, you shouldn't do the things you normally do on the Sabbath. You take a break from that and you honor the Lord. Well, the, the, the Jews, um, always wanting to um, enhance their own, the possibility of them fulfilling all of the righteousness of God, they broke down work into 39 different kinds of work. And so the, all these little categories of work that you were not allowed to do, and these were extra-biblical categories. They would take a little a passage of Scripture and they would extrapolate it. You know, you know, you can't carry anything heavier than a dried fig on, on the Sabbath. You know, there's all sorts of things like that. And in fact, there were places where um, you, you, could, uh, you could carry a lot more than that if someone, for example, needed to be moved and carried to go to the synagogue. You could carry that. <laughs> there were compassionate exceptions and so on. But in any case, they had taken God's intention as the Sabbath to be a rest, and they had turned it into um, really a source of stress and aggravation at keeping track of all of these things. So, this man, according to, not according to God's law, but according to the, their interpretation, their misguided interpretation, he was violating the law by picking up this little straw or this little thatched mat that would have weighed no more than a couple of pounds, and he was breaking the law. So you can see these guys are real sticklers for their understanding of the law. And they're totally missing the point that this invalid who moments before couldn't even get himself up to crawl to the pool, he's now walking and carrying his bed. There has been a wonderful, merciful intervention and they are so focused on their own preconceived understanding and their own constructed understanding of God and of His Word that they will not, they, they cannot even see what's going on here. They're very blind. They are as blind as the invalids around the pool. They do not know that Christ is among them. And the man answered them, He who healed me, that man said to me, Take up your bed and walk. They asked him, who is that man who said to you, take up your bed and walk? So, not only are they upset that this poor man has violated their law, but their understanding of the law, 
But they're even more concerned that someone actually told him to take up his bed, and he did it. And they want to go after that, because there is a man who is obviously instructing people to break the law. Now, this is spiritual blindness at its, at its greatest. They, they cannot see that there has been a wonderful work of grace done. And this man, has uh, his bones and his legs and his muscles have been strengthened. And all they're concerned about is nailing the guy who told them to do that. They have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. So that is, there, it is a misguided interpretation. It has an end. They, they want to suppress and silence and ultimately kill the one who is actually showing the truth about their traditions and, their, and showing the truth about the book that they hold so dear. Well, let's look next at this man's ignorance. It's not only these, um, the Jews that are misguided, this man himself, he's uh, missing a lot of what's going on. Um, as I said, I don't think this healing, I don't think there's anything to do with salvation going on here at this point. Uh, so in, in verse uh, 13, we, we, we read, Now the man who had been healed did not know who it was, that's his first level of ignorance. For Jesus had withdrawn as there was a crowd in the place. So Jesus basically gave the command. The man was healed. And while he was getting used to his new legs and jumping around and doing whatever he was doing, Jesus just kind of faded out of the picture. I don't know whether that was an intentional act of Jesus to do that. It could be that it would be a, a John chapter 2 situation where he did not reveal himself or he did not um, entrust himself to them because he knew what was in man. It might have been a deliberate thing. But we do see that there was a crowd. So Jesus, uh, at least on the surface, did not want the scrutiny of all, all of these people gathering around and focusing on the spectacle of the miracles. Remember Jesus' indignation about the people who um, believed in him because of the signs, but at the same time, they were not welcoming him. They were not honoring him as a prophet in their own town. They were only interested in the show that he could put on or in what they could get out of him. But, but this man is ignorant. He doesn't know who Jesus is or he doesn't know who healed him. But then it says afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and, and said to him, see, you are well. Now this is really interesting. Jesus says, sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you. Jesus is very much aware of this entire, the entire life history of this man. Just as he was aware of the woman at the well. Come, come, see a man who showed me everything I ever did. He knew this guy, inside and out. And he knew that somehow, at the root of his physical condition, was some specific sin. And the reason I say this is um, that there are a few examples in Scripture where there are specific sins that have specific consequences. Can you think of one just right off the bat? Anybody die suddenly? Ananias and Sapphira, right? They lied to the Holy Spirit, they lied to God, and they were immediately killed. 1 Corinthians 11, instructions for a communion. This is why some of you are sick and some of you have died. Why? Because they didn't, didn't uh, respect the body of Christ, referring to not only the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, but the body of believers that gathered in order to partake of that. So there are specific... Uh, Herod, Herod was eaten of worms and, and died because of what he, what he did to, uh, I think it was to John the Baptist. You know, so sin has consequences. And we shouldn't be surprised that the wages of sin is death. And sickness is just, it's just something on the way to death. So, but we need to be careful because we can begin to try to point fingers at people's sins and say, well, this is why you're suffering. This is why you're, this is why you're in trouble with God. 
because you did this or this or this. Job's friends tried that strategy. It, 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 it wasn't a very good encouraging strategy at all. Uh, and I, uh, although I'm sure they meant well. But the point is, there is in this man's heart, in this man's life, something that has brought physical um, infirmity upon him. And this thing is sin. And so he is an invalid. He is incapacitated. And we can see here that as of yet he is unrepentant. There is a lingering sin, probably a cherished sin. And at the very minimum, there is a sin that no one will go into eternity with this sin and be pardoned, and that is a sin of unbelief. He is, there is no evidence of faith here. So Jesus is, is uh, cautioning him. He says, you know, you've been healed. See, you're well. Now, and Jesus always starts with the physical, right? He started with the, the being born again metaphor. He started with the, uh, he started with the, uh, the, the water, the living water from the well. So he starts, you're, you're physically well. Do not neglect your spiritual health. Do not, do not minimize the sin that has made you, that has put you in the state that you are in. Now, I don't know whether this man ever comes to Christ or not, but you can see that his ignorance is also um, expressed in another way. He went away and told Jesus, told the Jews that it was Jesus who healed him. Now, he doesn't probably, or he may not know that they're out to get him. They may not know that. But I think that he could have gathered that from even their demeanor as they approached him. Because he was deflecting the attention from himself as a lawbreaker to the one who told him to break the law. Right? There's, there's nothing really benevolent or, or um, supportive of Jesus in his actions. And then you see the consequences of, of this. And this is why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. Okay. Now... That's reason number one. He's messing with the Sabbath. Um, there's, there's more to come here, though. The real reason why they not only persecute them, him, but uh, want to put him to death is because of how he identifies himself. So our next point in number six here is that there is an amazing identification. Listen to this. Jesus answered them, My father is working until now, and I am working. This was why the Jews were seeking to kill him, the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father and making himself equal to God. This is where this is all going here. And when he says, my father is working now, and I don't think any of them would have any objection to that. My father's working now. God's work, if God was not working, at least in some way, if God's hand of providence was withdrawn for a moment, everything would spin out of control. He, sus he sustains everything by the word of his power. So God rested when he created the world. He stopped his work of creation. But God is always working in the sense that he is always at work in his creation, among his creation, upholding his creation, sustaining his creation. And as God, who gave man the Sabbath for a rest for man, he doesn't have to limit himself to the, even the physical rest that men need. Uh, but the thing that when Jesus says, my father works and I am working, he's calling himself the son of God. And he's saying, whatever God does, as my Father, I do. We've got this connection. And in their understanding, the Son, who was doing the work of the Father, shared the office, shared the authority, and shared the, almost shared the personhood 
of the Father. So they, they, they saw Jesus. In their minds, he was blasphemously exalting himself to be equal with God. Now, had Jesus just wanted to save his hide, he would have just gone out of there. But when there's this mumbling and murmuring that he's making himself equal to God, Jesus jumps in to prove their point. To, to prove his point, that he is indeed equal with God, and that he is indeed not only equal with God, but God himself. So finally, we have here, in the rest of the chapter, or in uh, verse, up to verse 29, we have a marvelous instruction. Now just listen to how the Lord Jesus shares the gospel with these Pharisees who he knows want to kill him. He graciously shares the gospel with them and reveals who he is. Remember, the whole gospel of John is written that we might believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God and that believing we might have life through his name. That's why it's written. And so here is Jesus answering his critics, answering the, probably some of the faces there were some of the faces that were at the cross yelling at him when he was crucified. Just, so Jesus said to them, truly, truly, which means sit up and take notice. I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. So as Jesus is healing this man, who has been, uh, incompet or has been an invalid for 38 years, as he is healing this man, the Father is healing this man. They are, they are at one in this act of healing this man. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does. That the Son does likewise. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he himself is doing. And greater things will he show so that you may marvel. See, even these guys who are so skeptical... Jesus is saying, God is going to show things to me and through me that are going to make you marvel. I'm going to, it's, it's going to blow your mind the things that he's going to do. I wonder if one of those things was his salvation of the Apostle Paul. Wouldn't that make these Jews, these righteous religious Jews marvel? the one who is breathing out threats and cursing and throwing Christians in jail suddenly is worshipping Jesus as God. Well, that would be maybe one example. For just as the Father raises the dead and gives them life. Now remember, he's talking about greater things than what they've already seen. Here comes the greater things. Just as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so the Son gives life to whom He will. In other words, the Father has the power to raise the dead. The Pharisees would understand that. They believe in a resurrection. But, he is, but, but the Son has, gives life to whom He will. So the Father, the Son has this power of life raising life from the dead. And of course he is pointing, uh, sort of pointing forward to his own resurrection. He is perhaps even alluding to the resurrection of Lazarus. But ultimately the concern of John and the concern of Jesus is that the dead who are, those who are dead in sins and those who are separated from God because of sin can be brought near through the, through the blood of Christ and regenerated and brought to life through the Holy Spirit. And, um, and that a sinner can repent and find saving faith in Jesus Christ. Now look what, so not only does, is, uh, does he have the power to give life, listen to this, the Father judges no one but has given all judgment to the Son. Now that's Theologically, that's a tough one to deal with because you, you read certain passages where God is acting in judgment and you read certain passages where the Son is acting in judgment. And 
But what, what is meant by this is that at this juncture, Jesus is in, he's in a place where he is given authority to judge. And you know what? He is, even in healing this man, that authority is coming out a little bit. Stop sitting or something worse is going to happen to you. Doesn't that sound like the end of a sentence? When a judge is making a recommendation and he gives grace, says, all right, this happens again, you're in the clink. You know, you're, 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 uh, you're on thin ice here. Well, Jesus is one who judges. And he judges, and his judgment is effective and is important in who lives and who is brought back to life and who is not. That all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. So he's equal in honor to the Father. He's equal in judgment to the Father. He's equal in the power to give life. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Truly I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes in him who sent me has eternal life. So this is where it's all going. Guys, if you would just believe in me, you would see the greater things that would make you marvel. You would see something much greater than this invalid picking up his bed and walking. You would see the power of God unto salvation. Whoever hears my word and believes in him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment. So you want to escape the judgment that has been entrusted to the Son? You better believe in the one who sent Jesus. And you better believe in the word of the one who sent, because that word of the Son of God is the only way that you're going to have access to the Father. Then there's another truly, truly here. It says, truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. Ever hear of a dead person hearing? There has, to be, there has to be an act of resurrection. There has to be an act of impartation of life. There has to be life breathed into this dead clay in order for it to hear, for it to respond. The dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live. Now Jesus is not only speaking in future tense here, is he? The hour is coming, it's coming, and is now here, when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live. This previous verse, Jesus is talking to dead people. Whoever hears my word and believes in him who sent me has eternal life. He's talking to dead people. He's talking to people who far far past being spiritual invalids or spiritual corpses. And yet, there is, the day is coming, the hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God. This is why the preaching of the Word is so very important. <coughs> Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. And it doesn't come any other way. Um, and there are many ways that the Lord can bring His Word to people. But ultimately, there has to be this intellectual absorbing of the word, and there has to be this catalytic work of God's word coming in like breath and his spirit coming and regenerating a heart so that a person can be born again. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. And he has given him authority to execute judgment. Here's an important phrase. Because he is the Son of Man. Now you look at that phrase all the way through Scripture. Most of the time, Son of Man refers to a human being. It refers to, say, Ezekiel or, or Jeremiah. Or in the Psalms, people are referred to as sons of men. There's one specific place where there is a son of man who is identified as one like the son of man who actually rules in authority and judgment. 
And that's in the book of Daniel. Listen to this from Daniel chapter 7, verse 13 and 14. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the Ancient of Days, which is a, a way of referring to the God the Father, and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion, and a glory, and glory, and a kingdom, that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. That is the Son of Man. That is the, de the deity, the deified Son of Man, who is also even identified previously in this passage as the Son of God. These two coexist perfectly in Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the God-Man. And as the God-Man, as one like the Son of Man, as God made flesh, he has authority to judge he has authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. He is uniquely qualified to do this. Now what, what a paradox that the one who pronounces judgment, the one who raises some to life and, and uh, blessing and others to condemnation, that that is the same one who also gave himself and offered himself as a propitiation, as a sacrifice to turn away wrath of God. It's a kind of mind-blowing. Verse 28, Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice. Now, now he's speaking eschatologically. He's talking about people actually being risen from the dead, as we read about in, in 1 Corinthians 15 and, and uh, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. All who are the two will hear his voice and come out, those who have done good to resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. So there are two resurrections coming. A resurrection to life, which is Jesus is to these people who are seeking or soon will be seeking to kill him, he is first preaching to them the resurrection of life. If you hear my voice and believe in him who sent me, you will have everlasting life. There is the mercy of God that the, the, uh, the gospel is given freely um, so that even those who will ultimately reject it they hear this good news. Well, this resurrection of judgment and this resurrection to everlasting life, there's a connection also with the book of Daniel. It talks about the end. It says, There will be a time of trouble such as never has been since there was a nation until that time. And by the way, the person who is talking in Daniel chapter 12, verses 1 to 3, is the Son of Man. There's a long extended section where Jesus is speaking to Daniel. And this is what he says, But at that time your people shall be delivered, everyone whose name shall be found written in the book. Now the book is the Lamb's Book of Life. It's the book that contains the names of, and who knows, maybe the whole life history, or maybe at least the post-conversion history, of everyone who trusts in Christ. Everyone who's in that book will not undergo the judgment. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. It's exactly the same concept that Jesus is relating to the Pharisees. So, point for them is you can, you can wait for more and more signs and wonders. You can harden your heart more and more. Or you can turn now in repentance and faith. The man can turn from his sin in repentance and receive true life from Jesus through faith. That impotent, that invalid man. The Pharisees are 
enjoined to do the same thing. And the stakes are high. There's everlasting life and everlasting contempt. Can you imagine the contempt of God for eternity? We can have theological debates over when there's a, a hurricane or a tornado and a city gets decimated, whether that's the hand of God. Let's just say, let's just say maybe it is. Say maybe there is a judgment. That was a moment of contempt. Everlasting contempt. As opposed to everlasting life. Under the mercy of God and under the grace of God. Well, the title of this message is Greater Works Than These. Hope for Spiritual Invalids. So we've seen a miraculous healing. This miraculous healing was only a canvas on which Jesus could paint the glorious picture of the gospel. In all its starkness, the consequences of life and death and the way to life, which is and I'll read the words of Jesus directly here. Whoever hears my word and believes in him who sent me has eternal life. Jesus testified of his own death and his own resurrection. This is the word that we need to hear and believe and trust that he died in our place as the Son of Man. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for this passage of scripture and we thank you Lord for your, your grace to, to read it and understand what you've enabled us to understand and Lord there are surely many many things that have been missed and overlooked but I pray that as we continue to read your word you would continue to make it clear uh, the one song we said we sang is God is his own interpreter in other words, you are the one, Lord, who, who, who knows exactly what you mean, what you meant when you gave us your word. You've given us intellect and you've given us ability to understand these things, but we do not do this in a vacuum. Lord, we need your help to understand what your word is saying to us. And Lord, I thank you that you have provided for the, that help for us. Lord, you've given us your Holy Spirit to open the word to us. I pray that you've done some of that today, that you would continue to do that. And Lord, that we would, um, would not be so bound by the structures we put around your word that we miss its point, as the Pharisees did. And Lord, that we would see all around us the testimonies of grace that you provide us with in your word, in your people, in your church, and even in 